Welcome to Women in B2B Marketing, a show where CMOs, VPs of marketing, and all strong women leaders in B2B discuss their top tactics, strategies, and tips for building high-performing teams, leveraging trends, and ultimately rocking their marketing careers. Made by and for women, insightful for all. I'm your host and 15-year B2B marketer, Jane Sarah. Let's dive in. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today for another episode of Women in B2B Marketing. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Mariana Kogan, who is the CMO of America's at Hexagon Manufacturing Intelligence. She's a multi-time CMO and a Forrester Award-winning marketer. So welcome to the show, Mariana. Thank you very much, Jane, and thank you, everybody, to be joining the episode. Very excited to be talking with all of you. Yes, there's so much to talk about. We already talked through so many things before the mic came on. One thing I always start out with is just how you started your career. And before we go into it, I saw you started out at the Mexican embassy and as a TV presenter in Japan. So how did you get into marketing? Tell us how. I have a very unusual background. I'm actually an economist by training. I wow. banking just after I did the embassy and the TV show in Japan. I kicked off my career in um, investment banking, Goldman Sachs, Tokyo, fixing combination. Then I went into many years of business development, so really working in the trenches, you know, globally. When my son was was born and I took off, you know, a few years to stay with him, I started to think about wh- where was the world, you know, going with an operational background but then very interested in being customer-centric, I started working, growing through the ranks in you know, digital marketing, marketing operations, then you get into the messaging. So that's how I did a transition from really being an economist to be doing marketing. So I run a very, almost like a PNL marketing department. I really yes. feel like, you know, we deliver value. So that's kind of how the whole story happened from Mexico to Japan, London, and then Boston for quite a good number of years. Wow. So all over the place from, and I'm sure you bring everything that you've learned from being an economist and even being on TV, there's must be so much that you apply to your day-to-day now. Yes, definitely. I think, you know, it is a combination of, of all the different things that you've been doing. I, you know, about a year ago, I did an article on writing what is it to be, you know, Latin, but having, you know, spent so many years in Japan and how I apply a lot of the principles from the, you know, the Japanese business environment, Kaizen, process improvement, you always have to be improving. You know, Nemawashi, you always need to be getting, you know, support from the different parts so that you can build something really big. A lot from the Latin background on just get things done with what resources you, you know, you have, you know, finding opportunity where maybe some other people see a challenge. What is that opportunity that we can find? So yes, it's a little bit of a combination of uh, many, many different things that got me to where I am today. I love that. Did you say that you wrote an article somewhere? You wrote somewhere about the combination of being Latin and also having your career in Japan as well? 
I would love to link to that. Yeah, the article is a Hispanic executive magazine, and they wrote an article about, you know, precisely combining that that portion because some people tend to feel kind of like a Mexico and Japan. Couldn't there be more more different? But at the end of the day, there's many principles that you can bring to the table. Especially, I tend to work with very global companies. So how is it that you can get to adapt what is happening in Europe, with what is happening in the Americas, Asia, and so on. So yes, I'd be more than happy to share the, the link. It was, it was a pretty trusting um, article. Yes, that sounds great. I will put that in show notes for everybody. That sounds amazing. I do want to dive into also your international and global experience and just with marketing, right? Going global with marketing. But before we go there, or maybe it does tie in, so you have won Forrester's Program of the Year. So first of all, congrats. That's huge. And if you could talk us through the program that won and just that experience, that would be wonderful. Yes. The way that I always tend to uh, tend to tell people, it is like winning the, the Oscars in the you know, B2B marketing space. So it was one of the most exciting things that I think I have had in my, in my career winning, you know, Forrester. So it was an award related to the transformation that we did when I was working at PTC. From a marketing perspective, we were casting the net too wide. We were just sending emails and doing things in a big way, but it was casting the net you know, too wide. We were not really utilizing sales intelligence Again, going a little bit blind into what marketing was doing, a little bit too marketing rather than being thinking more about our sales team and our customers. And then thirdly, we were not meeting the customer where the customer was. We were still a little bit too much into filling a form and we would call you in a few days, that sort of thing. So what we did is that in a very, very strong alignment with our sales you know, counterparts, we implemented you know, like an ABM, approach, but really getting into being very operationally efficient and effective. So this was maybe in 2018, we bought SixSense, PeopleAI, and Drift on the same day. So with that, we were able to use a big conversation. The initial pilot brought in, in the first four months, $20 million in pipeline. Yes. Wow. The combination of the three. With the combination of the three, because with, you know, Sixth Sense, you know, by now it's a very mainstream technology, yeah. but we have that intent component. People AI will give me the account intelligence that, uh, you know, that we need. Then Drift would allow us to have conversations when people wanted to talk with um, us rather than having to wait. So that combination of sufficiency not only delivered the $20 million in, in pipeline, but we started to see a higher volume of higher quality opportunities, higher deal size, accelerated velocity to conversion because you're really doing the right strategy to the right account. So all that coming together is what got us to win Forrester Program of the Year. So absolutely very, very uh, exciting. It is uh, a program that I still execute. That was the reason why I moved from PTC to, you know, to PeopleAI. I used to talk a lot about this combination of intent and engagement. Because Sixth yeah. Sense allows to see the intent, people allows you to see engagement. So then that way you make sure that you're not wasting marketing efforts. Wow. You want to make sure that your sellers are engaging. 
are engaging to the right people, you're building the right buying uh, group. So that is something, it, it is a program that we continue implementing pretty much everywhere that I go to. Yeah, that's amazing. So that I hadn't heard of People AI, so I'm going to check that out next. That's a great combination to explore. And congratulations again on the win. I mean, any winning combination once you find it, you try it again and just tweak to customize it for the company you're with, right? Exactly, exactly. It's all about finding that operational efficiency. Sometimes yeah. marketing tends to think a little bit too far away from operational efficiency. And that's what yeah. some that doesn't quite buy us a seat at the table. But as you're looking into doing marketing strategy, marketing tactics, you really have to, to get into evaluating your channels, evaluating what are the things that you should be continue doing, the ones that you should stop doing. There's a lot of those decisions that sometimes marketeers tend to be afraid of touching. I'm a big believer that at some point CEOs should be, you know, CEOs because you're the one that starts driving those conversations on operational excellence. You can't quite be doing tactics that are not converting. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I hadn't heard that before, That, but it's a great perspective that CMOs should be COOs and think from that mindset. Does this bring you to rev ops and, and marketing ops and sales ops and that whole side of things? And do you see the value of that right away at your team and, and put so much weight onto that team? I think that it has to be a combination. It's never going to be one component because you can be extremely efficient, but then if you don't know your customer, then yeah. what happens if you don't have the right messaging? So that's why it's got to be that product marketing. It's got to be your alignment with, with sales. It's got to be, you know, your marketing operations. It's got to be all these different components that it's almost like an orchestra. Yes, you have to have a beautiful piano, but you have to have your violins and you have to have your trumpets and everything has to come into a very sweet orchestration to really deliver that performance of a lifetime. And I think that's what marketing should be aiming for. Yes. This brings me to, you were mentioning and that you are known as a transformative and transformational leader. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So what does that mean to you when you go to a new company? What's important to you and what do you come in with as your mindset and your to-dos? What it means is that when I arrive First and foremost, because I work primarily in the B2B space, I align with my sellers. That's number one. You have to really understand what are you looking to, to deliver? Where are you looking to deliver it? Once that you have that alignment with your sellers, you really have to understand your customer. And this is an area that sometimes marketing has a tough time. We don't spend enough time talking to our customers spending time with our sellers. And with that, what transformation means is that you're going to find ways to deliver on the results that you need to deliver without being constrained by the, this is how we've always been doing it. I think it's that mindset where you are willing to make changes and by making changes, I don't mean that you arrive and you just break everything because everything should be different. You deep dive into your data, you see what's working, what's not working. And also, and then going back a little bit to the question that you asked me about the, at the very beginning about the Japanese philosophy, you really get into this Kaiser approach 
how do I find what is the best way to get to results? You get into a very well organized way of leveraging technology, messaging, people, positioning, you name it. But in truly that mindset that you're gonna look at deliver results without being constrained by the way that things have been doing all those years before you join. I love that. It's taking a fresh perspective, but a thoughtful approach. So you go in and you you learn and you absorb from your team what they're seeing, what they're working on, what matters to your ICP. You're learning more about the customer. And then you look at the data and see what's working and you kind of piece these together and determine what you need to get results and then perhaps what tools you need to bring in that don't exist to get you there. Exactly. And then you start making the tough decisions. As I always say, transformation is not a popularity contest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to make some of the tough decisions. They're going to be based in data, which makes always things to be very objective. But, you know, you're going to make some tough decisions. You might have to start with pilots. You're going to have to build that credibility relatively fast so that people can want to follow you on some of these uh, big changes. I really appreciate yeah. my current team at Hexagon because there's a lot of change that we're going through. But having that open-mindedness to see, you know, what can I do that is better today than it was yesterday? Yeah, I love that. And I want to go a little deeper on the popularity contest piece because we were touching on this a little bit, but women... We do tend to, there are exceptions and I hate to blanket statement anybody, but we do tend to want to be liked, right? So going to that popularity contest, I found myself, for instance, coming into new positions, kind of putting out, don't worry, I'm not going to just make changes right away. And like, don't be scared that I'm coming in. And the fact that I need to preface that at all is exactly what you're talking about. Like, I shouldn't be caring about that right now, but I'm very torn on that. So yeah, what are your thoughts on the popularity contest of being a, a woman leader coming into a new a new senior role. I think that you're touching on one of the, the hardest topics for women to get a seat at the table because there is definitely a little bit of a bias, you know, judging on the executive personality of a woman, you know, versus a man. There are some, you know, gender challenges in that in that space. And I think that, as you say, without maybe making a you know a blank statement, it's also a little bit harder for you know for women to be comfortable. But it's not only on the woman's side; it's because also the table tends to be designed in a way that everybody's going to be judging you through maybe a different lens. So it is a Good table point. that also creates that challenge. So what I tend to do and to believe that it's okay to be different. As you continue building your team, as you continue building your reputation, I think it's just to be comfortable with the fact that yes, everything needs to be done, you know, with you know, with a human approach, with a lot of emotional alignment with what's what's going on, but at the same time with the comfort that you are going to be making tough decisions. You are an expert. You know why you're making them. And it's okay to be different. Yes. It's okay to not be liked. It's interesting because you 
the way you're reframing this is so eye-opening for me is that I tend to think women like want to be liked, right? But it's actually what you just said, is, or if correct me if I'm wrong, or is it the table putting that on us and making it so that we have to be liked because women should be liked. And this is just this historical thought that we all have and we're trying to shed. So interesting. No, I think it's a combination of the, uh, you know, the, the, the two components. I mean, if you think mm-hmm. about it, even outside of the, you know, of the workspace, if you had, um, I don't know, this might be the wrong comparison, but if you have a group of dogs and a cat arrive, yeah. <laughs> well, the cat is, the dogs are going to have to be, they need to try to welcome the cat as a cat. So that yeah. a cat is also comfortable being a cat. Yeah. Because there, yep. there are differences. So it's not only the cat that feels potentially uncomfortable yeah. at the group of dogs. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we're using cats and dogs. But you know, <laughs> I think I'm going to have a better comparison for the next time that touch on the topic. But it, I think it's both it works. sides. It's yeah. but it's also you. You know, I'm very lucky, you know, at Hexagon and at the PTC, I have always worked in very male-driven organizations just because it's, it's high-tech and then it's manufacturing, it's industrials. And um, I have always reported into, you know, into people that are really practically making sure that the table is open to whoever can do the best uh, the best job. I can't reporting to Paul um, Rogers. And he's very keen on making sure that the best person can deliver the best work by making it a very equal table. Interesting. And that's where you're getting to this mentorship, the sponsorship. You know, you really got to make a, an effort so that the best person can, can do the job. Yes. In a recent conversation, I spoke with a woman who said that having a sponsor who's really kind of the opposite of us is key because then you have somebody, let's say a white male, for instance, advocating for you when you're not there. Not that they have to be, but it's like having a sponsor who is unfortunately stereotypically more heard and seen is key to you getting ahead. What are your thoughts on that? You agree? So first of all, you're talking about, you know, sponsorship. So let's maybe first start with the concept that you need sponsors that are going to be talking about you when you're not there. Yes. And that is something that people, you know, should have. Sometimes I have spoken about the fact that you should have your own career uh, board of directors. So you have those sponsors, some of them internal, some of them external. But it is mm-hmm. that board of director, those sponsors that are going to take you to, you know, to places where, where it might have been a little bit more complicated to get there. I was extremely lucky, blessed, if you want to call it. You know, at PTC, I had Barry Cohen, our chief um, strategy officer. He has retired recently. But I do think that he saw potential on me even before I knew I had the potential. He was uh, tough sometimes with me on what is it that I needed to do and was I ready to present and, you know, help me with, you know, with a lot of the things that, a lot of the ideas that uh, that I had. But yes, you, you do need to have sponsors that already have a seat at the table. I mean, B2B yeah. technology marketing for the most part is going to be, you know, white males that already have that, um, that seat. 
and many of them are very, very willing to help and support you. I had, uh, you know, Peter Vescuso, a phenomenal CMO that also helped me through my my career. And the same way, yeah. I have sponsors outside where I work that help me in in many other ways as um, as I have questions and as I need guidance. So you, you always yeah. need that. I love that you're able to name three men who have advocated for you and mentored you and sponsored you throughout your career, just off the top of your head. That's just very refreshing to see, I have to say. And then second, how have you found these advocates and sponsors and your personal board of directors? How have you gone about building this support system that has helped you thrive? That is an interesting question because I don't, I mean, I don't think that there is you know, like a methodology per se. I think it's about almost like taking the opportunity when it happens. Yes. With Barry, I think I mentioned at the beginning, Peter, you know, I was reporting into into him and we, we find certain chemistry. He came with a very, you know, with a great agenda that would require a lot of my, my functions to deliver. So that created, you yeah. know, the opportunity. You know, I'm also very lucky to have, you know, Andrew Dreyfus as a big supporter. He's a former CEO of a group called Blue Shield of uh, Massachusetts, and he's helped me in some other areas in my in my career. So I think you have to say the opportunity. You have to ask. Yeah. I mean, yes. with Andrew, if I recall, we, we met through a different conversation and as he was going to be retiring, he posted on LinkedIn that he was going to be retiring. And I, I sent him a message saying, hey, would you be open? to mentor me, sponsor me now that you're going to be moving towards the next chapter in your life. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. You know, you have to demonstrate that you're bringing, you know, a solid game to the conversation. Your sponsors are, you know, you have to take uh, very serious at them when you, when you meet with them, because these are by now a little bit less than you, maybe your friends are meeting college, then you have so many, so much time together. So yeah. you have to be very organized on how you are approaching. But many times it's about asking when you meet the right person that you're feeling that the chemistry is in place. Yeah, that's a really good point. Just making sure you're putting yourself out there for these opportunities and, and these introductions and to take advantage of them when they when they present themselves as well. Really good point. You posted recently, I think it was on LinkedIn, about the evolving role of product marketers in tech companies and how your latest product launch felt more like a binge-worthy mini-series on, on Netflix, if I'm quoting correctly. Can you explain just how this has happened, what's changed, and, and just how this performed? A lot of things have, um, have changed. If you think about it, Product marketing are your storytellers. As a marketeers, we know we find a way to tell that story, but it is working together with your with your product marketing team to be able to to dissect what is it that you're going to be telling to whom, so that they are you know that they are keen to become a, you know a customer. And especially now with with social media, with social selling, with personal branding. The core of all that content creation is in product marketing. You cannot be creating assets. Even the most engaging, snackable piece of content has to have quality because there is so much garbage out there these days. 
content creation is becoming, you know, so easily that there are people out there producing massive volumes of content that are not really even worth reading. If you want to capture your audience, you have to give value in your asset. And that value, so true. it's going to be part of your storytelling because it has to be snackable. It has to be, it has to have so many different requirements. And the ones who have the key to that part is part of marketing. They are the ones, if you're going to have in a, a webinar, there has to be somebody there that is going to be able to tell a, to tell a story, to engage your customers. One of the, the, the projects that I'm currently you know, working with is the democratization of PR. Gone are the days where you could have one agency producing all the content that, that you needed. Especially when you work for a company like, like Hexagon that is so diverse, we sell maybe 300 different products in, you know, to strategic accounts, to land and expand accounts, to PLG accounts, to small accounts, to large accounts in different trades. I need to be in, I don't know, 300 different publications cover. The only way to do that is by empowering your product marketing team to develop their brand and help my sellers to develop their brand. So now I have a team of a thousand, two thousand different people that are helping to produce, to create that brand that can be trusted. And the ones that are creating that source, like in Netflix, your directors, your screen player writers, all that yeah. is your product marketing. If you want to be doing a product release that it's really worth capturing market share, it's going to have to be a beautiful production. But at the core, it's going to be your product marketing team building that story that you're going to be telling to the right person at the right time in the right channel. But there's a story that has to be, and that comes from product marketing. I love that comparison. Your product marketers become the directors and the screenplay writers. Do you see your product marketers and that team working very closely with the content team or does the product marketing team become the content team? Let me answer the question in two different ways. Okay. First of all, and it might be that we need to be changing the name of the team, maybe product marketing yeah. be renamed. In some companies you have product marketing and then you have solution marketing and then you have other type of marketing. I don't think it's one, there is one answer. Recently, the way that I've been explaining it, and that's because I work now for a Swedish company, there's almost three types of content, if you want to call it that way, three types of campaign. If mm -hmm. you think about IKEA, you have almost like the brand. There's sustainability, Nordic design, it's, you know, value product at a low cost and all these different things that are a little bit more at the brand level. But yeah, don't really sell anything. It's a little bit like Nike, you just do it. We understand where it comes from, but it doesn't really sell a product. All mm -hmm. the way to the other side, you have your product campaigns where you really have the specific shoe, the specific candle. But there's a portion in the middle, and that's why IKEA has been so successful. You go to their, you know, to their um, showroom, and you see the full room built. Yes. And that is your value campaign. Now you see why how all the pieces, all the different products are coming together 
to deliver the value. And they say for $2,000, you can do this room. So you're seeing, well, 2,000 versus if I went to a traditional you know, store, it would get cost me maybe $10,000. Well, everything that is here, you can put it in, your, in the truck of your car right now. And at the same time, you can buy everything, more like a solution play, or you can really buy just one candle. All those three topics need to come from, from the product. It's just a story told through a different lens, the lens of the brand, the lens of the value, the lens of the actual product. But the three of them need to be able to deliver value to your customer. So that's why potentially at some point is product marketing going to be creating content? Yes. Yeah. But they're going to be working with a content team that now knows how to make it potentially, you know, more snackable, more engaging. But a lot of these product marketeers are going to have to be building their own content. So they're building their own presence, their own brand, because we like trusting people. We don't want to trust brands anymore as much. Yeah, you want to trust the person that is behind the content. So there's going to be a lot of shiftings on who's doing what. The same way that I mean, we would have never thought that a CEO was going to be writing, you know, his or her own content on LinkedIn. That yeah. in between would have been unthinkable ten years ago. So how do you now, this brings me into a whole nother piece, but it's related is how do you activate your team? I know you mentioned having a thousand, 2000 people out there speaking on behalf of your, your brand and your product team. I think you said your product marketing team helps activate them. How do they do that? And are there, do you identify the rock stars who you want to put more behind and get on stage and highlight or What's kind of your, your game plan there that you've seen work in the past? So we do have an ambassador program for social media. We are doing, you know, training on how to build your own pitch to the media. We empower, you know, content. We just did, you know, social selling, you know, training during SKO. So different ways to get people trained, but even more importantly, comfortable. About yes. the fact that it's okay to publish. Yeah. I think it's a combination of the skill set, but then more importantly, that it's okay. Just do it. Going back to the yeah. Nike conversation. Yeah. Oh, and this comes full circle to, well, we could talk all day, but this comes full circle to another topic we just started touching on before the mics came on of when things well, the concept of done is better than perfect, when that com concept is applicable and when it's really not. And you just mentioned your, your SKO, your sales kickoff event. And I know you had a big presentation there that went over really well. So if you could tell me why that's an example of where you do want to pay a lot of attention and emphasize every word of the, the speech and presentation versus when it's okay to get it out there and just do it. And it is an interesting balance. I think it has yeah. to be aligned with prioritization. If I'm going to write, write a post on LinkedIn, I'll spend you know, 15, 20 minutes putting it together if I'm going to be writing a lot. If I'm going to write a comment, I'm going to put like two minutes on writing the content. If I'm going to be doing a marketing presentation in a sales kickoff to my sellers, I'm going to spend a lot of time making sure that it really connects with, with my sellers, 
making sure that it's content that is delivering value. I'm going to make sure that every word is the way that it should be. So I think it's a little bit less about perfectionism and it is much more about prioritization. It is a little bit more about empowerment of your team so that you start working with them almost like us throughout the, you know, a year. I run a weekly empowerment session for my teams so that then you're talking more about, it's really empowering the, the team. It is about letting everybody have the accountability and ownership of their own departments because they are and they should be the best in the industry. So once that you have, you know, empower, prioritize, then you know what is a 10% where you really, really need to be careful put a lot of attention to everything that you do. But there's another 80% that that's where you, you delegate your power and your prioritize. I love that. The prioritize empowerment piece. I feel like that should be a bumper sticker. You mentioned you have empowerment sessions with your team. Can you explain that a bit? I, I love the, the concept of it, but I haven't heard of it before. I run it once a week. Rather than having a normal Amazing. team or meeting where you're just going through who's doing what, I started running these sessions when I was working at, at PTC because as part of the, the transformation and we were just talking about product marketing, I had a very professionally young, professionally, you know, new to the organization web team. You know, mm -hmm. digital experts, SEO, PPC, digital experience, you know, that sort of background, really good, each and every one of them. And then I had phenomenal product marketing team at PTC who have been in the industry, you know, for many years. So if you want to be able to get the most out of those two teams working together, you have to empower your professionally young crowd to have a voice. So at the very beginning, they were very concerned about, well, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't know, a PPC or a keyboard manager. And you want me to be telling a VP of automation that maybe he or she should consider writing in a different way so that we can get ranking discoverability. It's a tough ask. And this mm -hmm. is where in order to, you know, to be able to, to delegate, to make a bigger transformation, you have to make sure that people have the tool set that they need to do their jobs. And there is a portion that is more on the empowerment side and is yeah. less of the know how to do your job. So that's how those sessions started. And now I do them on a weekly basis. So we go through different topics that are really not related to how to do marketing. It's more yeah. how to work in an organization, especially I do tend to work for large organizations, but even it applies to same uh, to smaller organizations because you always have to be talking with vendors, with, with partners, with different people in the ecosystem. So you have to um, you know, empower them to feel comfortable that that they can do some of these, you know, these big challenges, but also making sure that there's accountability, there's yeah. ownership, there's having a voice. Some things that are as simple as when you attend a meeting, you have to have a voice. Or mm -hmm. when don't show up to the meeting because we're yes. going to think that you are not bringing value to the table. And the next time around, 
or the next time around when you want to say something, you don't have the credibility of the brand to be making the statement. So it's yes. a lot of that work, you know, especially with, you know, professionally younger teams that, that, that you think it's, um, it's an obligation to have if you want to be able to, to build a very, you know, very powerful team. Yeah. I would love to be a fly on the wall in those sessions. That sounds so invigorating. It's almost, you're teaching them to become a sponsor for themselves, right? Because you need that first and foremost in order to identify additional sponsors to continue to grow in your career. And especially now with the hybrid and remote work styles, a lot of that you might have been able to learn it from the person sitting in the next queue or at the water cooler because you will bump into somebody who's been around the block and will take yeah. you under his or in or her wing. Now that that doesn't exist, it is something that, that we, we need to take as a, as a priority. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, so much has changed in this remote culture, but it's there's these things you don't even think about. It's peripheral. So you don't pay attention to, I love that you're taking this and bringing it front and center into a weekly session with your team. That's amazing. I know we're, we're almost at time here. I feel like we touched on so many different amazing topics that I haven't touched on on this show before. So this is great. If you could think of one key tip for fellow women in B2B marketing, in addition to everything you've already shared or what one thing that you'd want to emphasize, what would it be? I think be comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's a good one. And that comes back to not always having to be liked, right? And to, I feel like the, the word I would put for you and for this episode is definitely empowerment and strength and just being confident and being yourself. So putting yourself out there. I love that. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Exactly. Women have so much to offer. But sometimes we, we get a little bit, you know, constrained and I, uh, I think it's a, that empowerment, you know, we are phenomenal. We're really good. We work hard. We're intelligent. We have ideas. You know, we know how to get things done. We know how to be strategic. We know how yeah. to think out of the box. Yes. To just go and do it. Be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because it is going to be a bumpy road and it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. So be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yes. Well, Mariana, if you ever release a course or when you speak on stage next, I want to come see you. So I will be watching your feed for announcements to make sure you just, you pump me up. And I, it's, I hope everyone listening feels the same way. It's just, there's so much invigoration and motivation from just hearing you speak. And I, I told you this beforehand, if everybody follows Mariana on LinkedIn, she writes as eloquently as she speaks. So the her posts are very, even though she says she, she doesn't put a lot of time into it, they're very well written and composed. So give her a follow for sure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jane. You've been, you've been phenomenal. I try to communicate things that, that are important to uh, to everybody. But, you know, thank you so much. It's been a, a pleasure to have this conversation with you and your audience. And always happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Again, dropped so much knowledge. And thank you, everybody, for, for tuning in and listening. If you like the show, share with a friend, like, rate, review. It all helps us get in front of more women and more marketers because anybody can listen to the show. There's a lot we have to give. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.